Hey folks, you know what? A small regret is slouching in the dentist chair thinking I should have brushed and flossed better. A big health regret is listening to your doctor and thinking I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. I have that regret a lot. Better health today and when it matters most is why I take Field of Greens. Field of Greens is unlike any fruit and vegetable or green product. Field of Greens isn't watered down extracts. Field of Greens is an organic superfood. It's whole fruits and vegetables. Each fruit and vegetable was selected by doctors to support vital body functions like heart, liver, kidneys, metabolism, and of course, your immune system. And only Field of Greens is backed by a better health promise. At your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or you're gonna get your money back. Don't look back and say, I should have paid attention to nutrition when I was younger. Field of Greens is a key to better health today, right now, and when it matters most. Let's get you started with 15% off and free shipping. All you got to do is visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS at checkout. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Hello, America, and happy Friday. Yes, we made it through another week. It was a short week because we had the blessing of the 4th of July holiday on Monday. But it's been a busy week. Lots of momentous decisions. The Georgia court ruling earlier this week, you know all the things that have broken. We had the good Hunter Biden story that opened up new ground in the Burisma scandal. Uh, but today we're going to focus on two things. Uh, we have a very important uh, rally this weekend all across the world in cities from Washington, D.C. to Tehran. There is going to be the free annual free Iran uh, event. And the go goal is to get a dialogue globally going for the moment when Iran can be freed from the radical mullahs that run their government. Uh, the new a president who has a long human rights abuse record sanctioned by the United States, President Raisi, brand new in Iran, a thumb in the eye of America, thumb in the eye of human uh, rights across the world. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about that with Dr. Rama Sheparad, good friend of mine, longtime member of the Iranian-American community, what we call the diaspora, the expats of Iran, who are fighting from without, supporting those within, like the MEK, the, the resistance fighters in Iran, to try to bring about regime change. And Ramesh is going to be here to describe all of the dynamics going on, what to watch for on stage at this event, and what to watch for in the American-Iranian uh, relationship. The, the very difficult dance that Joe Biden is trying to do with Iran uh, with a brand new president with a horrific record of human rights. Uh, we're going to start with that. And then because we also want to think about things in our own country, this has been a tough week for the markets. It's been a tough week for the economy. It's been a tough couple of months for the economy. Real big red warning signs. We've been talking about this since the beginning of the year, that there were warning signs on the horizon. And we're lucky to bring back today one of our good um, experts from our, our partnership at uh, Birch Gold Group. We're going to talk about inflation. We're going to talk about ways to get ready in case there's a market bubble, in case it collapses. What are the tools? What are the levers? And then bring it back to you, which is what can I do within my investment portfolio with my retirements to weather a, a, an upcoming storm if it is so on the horizon, like many are predicting. Uh, and we're going to have that great conversation. Thanks to our good friends at Birch Gold. But first, uh, let's go to a quick commercial break here from our sponsors. When we come back, Dr. Rama Separard, tremendous expert on Iran, her family 
uh, was imprisoned Iran for fighting for freedom. Big free Iran uh, rally coming up this weekend. You can watch it on justthenews.com. Stay tuned. Very important discussion about American-Iran relations right now. Right after this, commercial break. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, a very special guest to talk about a very special event going on this weekend. The uh, Iranian expatriate community is having their annual event, the Free Iran event. And this year, more than any in recent history, the consequences couldn't be higher. We have a fundamental shift in U.S. policy toward Iran. Joe Biden has brought the effort back to having a conversation about resuming the nuclear deal, maybe propping up, giving money to the Iranian regime. And joining us right now is really a, a, a true expert, uh, a great academic, a uh, great author, cybersecurity executive, and most importantly, an advisory board member to the largest Iranian-American uh, organization in America, the Organization of Iranian-American Communities. Uh, joining us right now is Dr. Ramesh Separard. Dr. Uh, Ramesh, good to have you here. Great to be with you, John. Thanks for the invitation. We have, oh, it's my honor. We've known each other for a long time. And uh, over the years, we have seen time and again, uh, U.S.-Iran policy shift. And this year, there's been a pretty momentous shift. So as we go into the Free Iran uh, event this weekend, what are some of the top lines that you see impacting uh, American-Iranian uh, relations right now? No, that's, a, that's an excellent way of characterizing it. And you're absolutely right. It is a turn of a significant page. And if I could just take a moment to explain uh, what's significant about this upcoming event on, on July 10th is going to be the first gathering, in fact, the largest ever online and in-person uh, global event of the Iranian diaspora after Ibrahim Raisi was selected as Iran's new president. Right. We all know he is, uh, he is sanctioned by the United States for his direct role and involvement in massacre of uh, political prisoners in the summer of 1988. And uh, he is really known as a mass murderer among not just the Iranian population, but the international uh, human rights community. Sure. Uh, Amnesty International has already been outspoken about. Yeah, very outspoken. He held, yeah, he should be held accountable. Significant number of UN experts have already gone on the record that um, Raisi is a mass murderer and his rise to presidency is uh, essentially as a front to any um, any notion of democratic values and basic principles of human rights. So, so from that perspective, uh, it really makes this event quite timely. And um, and I think, you know, if you kind of take a step back and think about who's going to be attending this summit and why is it different than previous years? Because obviously, this has been an annual uh, event uh, by Iranian diaspora and, and significant number of Iranian Americans. 
used to attend in person and over the last couple of years they're attending it virtually right. because of the pandemic. Yeah. But this year, you know, there's going to be tens and thousands of democracy advocates uh, attending this event uh, virtually. The in-person events are happening in major capitals around the world, including Washington, D.C. There's going to be in-person events um, in Washington, D.C. on Saturday. Um, there's going to be in-person events in Paris, Berlin, London, Amsterdam, Stockholm, Oslo, Vienna, Rome, Geneva, as well as Albania, which is the home of Iran's uh, main opposition uh, group, the MEK, um, right. the city of Ashraf III in Albania. So those in-person uh, meetings uh, and the virtual uh, gatherings of the diaspora is essentially bring, is going to bring in 50,000 points of access from across 106 countries and across six continents. It really shows how significant this event is. It really shows how expansive the message of democracy and freedom for the people of Iran is across the globe. And more importantly, it shows that that impressive organizational skill that the Iranian opposition has put in place to really bring the Iranian diaspora together. So I think from that perspective, it's a major, major show of force to really go on the record and denounce Raisi's presidency and the rights of his role, uh, his, um, I guess, new function as a president to Iran's Supreme Leader um, Ali Khamenei. So I think, um, you know, the other major dimension of this event, I would say, just the dignitaries and the speakers that's going to be, that are going to be addressing this event, uh, for example, um, based on the numbers I have seen and I've uh, received so far, I, I suspect that more than a thousand political figures, including um, over 30 bipartisan members of U.S. Congress, um, including Chairman Menendez, including uh, lead, House Leader Kevin McCarthy, senior members of former U.S. officials from both sides, you know, both Democrat and Republican administrations will be addressing this event. And of course, from Europe and the rest of the world, um, there is, you know, I'm uh, expecting to see significant number of um, personalities, including 12 former prime ministers, presidents, 70 former uh, ministers from North America, Europe, and the Middle East. Um, you know, this this particular event is going to have a very strong show of sitting lawmakers from Europe and Canada, which really tells you that the issue of human rights and democracy for Iran is a global call. It's a global call uh, across U.S., Europe, um, I should say North America, Europe, and um, even the Islamic countries. I think in the past years, there were a significant number of parliamentarian members from Egypt, Jordan, and other parts of Islamic countries that uh, attended and addressed this event, and I suspect this year will be the same. So um, you asked the question about what shift this will have in U.S. policy and, and, and what should we expect as the outcome of this summit. I think the summit's main focus is to really hold Iran's next president, Ibrahim Raisi, accountable for his direct role in the 1988 massacre that really led to more than 30,000 political prisoners being killed in that short summer of yeah. um, 1988, there's been significant... One of the greatest genocides in, in world history. I mean, and, it and really it, has it's only been, been 30 years. A lot of people have forgotten it. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, it was the 
largest um, genocide since the World War II, and and there still continues to be families of the victims and even the survivors that are going on the record calling for accountability. And I think that that momentum is going to be a significant shift in not just U.S., but the global policy on Iran, including European uh, countries, too. Because when you think about it, how could you sit at a table with a mass murder as a president, with a regime that has a mass murder as a president? It just doesn't, it doesn't quite compute when it comes to yeah. our values of human rights, democracy, and, and just basic principles of human rights. So and there's already a significant shift in, in that perspective. And I think the other main focus um, of the summit would be you know, the participants, which includes relatives and family members of the, you know, 1988 massacre. Right. Let me just actually add, um, it wasn't just the, you know, 1988 massacre was the most significant massacre that took place, but the waves of massacre have continued. Oh, Iran. absolutely. You know, um, in, in the uprising of 2019, the regime killed peaceful uh, protesters, the yes. uprisings of um, 2018 and and 2019 and 2020. Again, the regime killed um, peaceful protesters. In 2019 alone, in November of 2019, if you remember, uh, Raisi was... Um, judiciary minister, right? Judiciary minister, yes. He, he, or, you know, he, along with Rouhani and Khamenei, essentially ordered the massacre of 1,500 protesters. And oh. that number, based on recent studies and, and, and a research that was done by two reputable um, universities in UK and Europe, um, that number is actually more than 1,500 these days. They're saying it's close, more closely to uh, 2,500 to 3,000 people that were killed in, during the street protests. Wow. So it's a matter of policy for this regime. You know, the massacre was not just a point in time in the history of Iran is an ongoing practice by this regime. So this summit is going to bring focus into that. This summit is going to be uh, bringing focus to a united call for a firm policy by U.S. and Europe. You know, there's so much common ground when it comes to the issue of human rights and democracy that U.S. and Europe can work together on holding this regime accountable. You know, and, and it's very, very clear that, um, that you know, with the ongoing protests, ongoing strikes inside Iran, the people of Iran have rejected this regime already, given yep. the massive boycott that took place on June 18th election, uh, less than a month ago. So even if anyone had any doubt or any question on the legitimacy of this regime, it is now evidenced by the massive boycott. And this is not just the opposition and those of us in diaspora that have done studies and published on, on the significant statistics that came from inside Iran saying that there was a massive boycott. It's the regime itself that's saying this was an unprecedented low turnout. Yeah. And part of it is because Khamenei decided to significantly, what we traditionally say in our um, political discourse of Iranian politics, engineer the election in his favor so that he could pull Raisi out of the ballot box. The yep. shrinking of the inner circle for Khamenei is very telling that he is desperate, he is weak, even to a point that he was willing to sacrifice his most trusted advisors 
so that he could get somebody like Raisi as a president. So, so the next question that may arise is, why Raisi? You know, there is definitely yeah, why at this moment? Right? Why take a hardliner exactly. at this moment? <laughs> exactly, and you know, there is not shortage of oppressors and mass murderers sure. in this regime. Yeah, they could have picked There's anyone, but they picked a, they picked a heavyweight. They picked him. So, so the real question is why, right? And and I would say, Raisi was picked for one and one reason only, and that is, is masterful, and he is the most skilled when it comes to the, um, the mass killing of Iran's most organized opposition, which is the NEK. Yep. He was, uh, you know, he is willing and he's got, made, you know, proven track record for harmony that, yes, we understand the regime is weak. This is the regime's own calculation, right? Regime is weak. How do we survive? The only way to survive is to eliminate existential threat, which is the organized opposition group, yep. namely the NEK. So from, from that perspective, I think uh, Khamenei picked Raisi so that he could crush the momentum and um, the popularity of that NEK has gained in the Iranian society. But just as any other dictator, I think Khamenei is greatly mistaken. Because when you look at historic evidence, when you look at historic com- comparison between countries as they go major through major transformation and change from dictatorship to the to democracy, you know the more oppression breeds more resistance. And oh yeah, history has uh, dotted with many examples of that. The more you oppress, the more the resistance grows. Exactly. People want to be free. Exactly, they cannot. I mean, how many cannot deny? that basic and innate call for freedom by, by the Iranian citizens. Yeah. No matter what he does and no matter who he has in, in the various roles of his regime, because the next immediate move he made was he brought the other mullah, uh, Ajayi, as his judicial chief for Raisi. And uh, mullah Ajayi is actually was, uh, he was sanctioned by the Obama administration. Was. For his role, yeah. yes, for his role for mass killing and human rights violations. So. So again, I think um, to go back to your core question of what's shifting, several things are shifting. The moment, the momentum is shifting in favor of Iranian people, in favor of Iran's most organized opposition group, the NEK. The momentum is shifting against the regime. Khamenei has seen the writing on the wall and the uh, weakness of his regime. And no matter what he does, um, he's just in a deadlock. Uh, you know, he could either go back to the negotiation negotiation table and cave in. If he does that, he will collapse from within. That's right. Or so he would continue to keep the hardcore policies, uh, whether it's the oppression at home or the terrorism abroad. And again, more pressure will come at him, both from the Iranian people and the international community. So I think uh, we are going to be witnessing significant um, shifts in Iranian society. Uh, more so um, in, in the coming months. And this summit is going to be an amazing start into witnessing that, that shift in that moment. Oh, it's such important, and we're going to be covering it uh, day and night here at uh, Justin News. I want to uh, just take a personal moment here. So just for our audience who may not know, just uh, describe your family's connection to Iran and how you got to be involved in the, in the role that you play today at, at OAIC. That's an excellent question, and thank you for asking that. Yes, um, so my family has been political um, 
against two dictatorships in Iran. One was the Shah's dictatorship, where right. my uncle um, was a political prisoner during the Shah. So there was always, you know, political discourse and dialogue in our home and our family gatherings because of our personal experience there. And then, of course, after the 79 revolution, um, my, both my parents and my younger sister were also um, activists. Uh, I was very young at the time. I was, um, I was 11 when the revolution happened. But my sister was still an activist. At age 14, she was arrested, and she faced two years in prison. And, and she also, you know, she almost faced execution, but it was, you know, my father's uh, uh, continuous efforts um, to really try to save her, and we were able to, um, you know, reduce her sentences. And it really goes back to the corrupt nature of this regime. He had to pay lots of money to get uh, to save his daughter. So I think um, so both my parents were in prison. My mom was in prison for six months uh, because she was part of the, the Mother's Network and supporting the Mother's Network supporters of MEK. I mean, wow. her family was supportive of MEK. So for me, I have had witnesses up close and personal. Yeah. But it wasn't until I came to the United States that I started to kind of really try to look at the situation in Iran. And, you know, I was able to really establish a very successful life in this country. And I had the choice to say, I've got a new life. I've got a new beginning, new country. I'm not looking back. But it's so hard, John. It's so hard to forget where you come from. It's almost negating the identity that you have. And I cannot. And 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 the cost, the personal cost of your family, that time in prison to fight for freedom is, is not something soon forgotten. That, that is so true. I mean, to this day, I, uh, as we get together in a family gathering, my sister, my mom recite and remember the people that they were in prison with and who are no longer with us, and they give up their lives for freedom and democracy. And, and one thing I do want to call out, the significant role of women in this movement. I think if you look at um, my personal life, my family, and extrapolate that to the broader Iranian society and the diaspora, Women have played a significant role in this movement for changing Iran. It is not by accident that this movement is led by a woman, Maryam Rajavi. It is not by accident that the Iranian regime considers her as, her, her number one enemy, as their number one enemy because she has the platform for a free Iran. The 10-point pla- uh, plan that she has put forward resonates with the desire of Iranian people's uh, uh, for democracy and for freedom and for future prosperous Iran. So that's why today you see significant protests and rallies inside Iran happening and organized by women and girls. Yeah. Because they have the most to gain by freedom and democracy. Yeah. Because they are the most oppressed sector of society. And I think, you know, um, beyond me and my personal family, um, it is the story of Iranian people. It is whether there are MEK supporters or the pro-democracy act- activists. It is the 10-point plan that brings all of us, all Iranians together, no matter what your political affiliation is. Who would want to say no to a secular republic, non-nuclear Iran? Yeah. Who, who is going to be uh, operating on a rule of law? Who is going to be, um, you know, de- defining... Um, peaceful coexistence with its neighbors so that we could have a peaceful and stable Middle East. Uh, so I think it is all of those things that is going to really 
uh, be a transformative engine uh, for a future Iran, and we're only going to see one small example of it in this upcoming summit on Saturday. Well, it's going to be an important event, and we will be watching closely and covering the news at it uh, day in and day out. As uh, people watch the speeches and they see Democrats and Republicans and career diplomats and others from America and elsewhere in the world deliver the same message, um, it's a, there's, there's an interesting divide in American policy. And we've seen it really since, since the uh, embassy was taken um, hostage by the mullahs in 1979 and our, our American citizens were held captive for more than 400 days. Um, there's been two approaches, right? There's one approach that says, based on Iran's 30, 40 year, 50 year history, uh, they're not redeemable, right? They, 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 they made IEDs that killed our soldiers in Iraq. They took our, our hostage embassy. They sponsored terrorism around the world. They tried to bump off a Saudi ambassador in the United States on U.S. soil in a plot that was thwarted by the FBI. They're always going to be bad actors, and therefore, the only alternative is regime change. And then there is, and that that um, sentiment, uh, either capitulation or regi- regime change, meaning the Malays either have to capitulate and renounce all of these practices, or they have to give up power. Then uh, that's been pretty representative of the Reagan years, uh, the uh, Bush years, uh, both Bush administrations and uh, the Trump years. And then we saw in the Clinton years and certainly in the Obama years and now the beginning of the Biden years, a different approach, which is, listen, we've got to deal with Iran. They're not going to change anytime soon. So what we ought to try to do is get the best deal possible, put them in a box, keep the, the nuclear weapon out of their hands for five or 10 years if we can. And if we have to give them billions of dollars and lots of concessions, We'll do that. And we, we, it's been cyclical. You, we, we know that this has gone through this process. The moment Joe Biden gets into uh, office as president, there's a clear awareness of the Iranian people that we're going back to the Obama and the Clinton approach, which is let's try to do some appeasement and let's see if we can get a good deal, resume the nuclear deal. At that moment, Iran has a choice of who's going to be the face of their country. Is it going to be a moderate that engages or is it going to be a hardliner? And they chose a hardliner, a person who spit in the face of human rights by America's own account, by Amnesty International's own account. Help us understand the calculation. I understand the internal politics, that they've got to suppress uh, this growing movement in Iran to overthrow the mullahs. But what political calculation is it to say to the American administration that maybe has the most willingness to make a deal with him, if you're going to make a deal with us, you got to make it with this president, with this bad record of human rights. Um, what what is the calculation by Iran in that American-Iranian dialogue? I think um, we, we already talked about the Iran's weakness and Khamenei's calculation. Right. I think when it comes to the clarity of the narrative that's coming from the regime, they are gearing up for more violence, whether it's at home or abroad. I mean, Khamenei is taking gloves off. So I think the message I would have is, for not just the United States, but the international community for U.S. and Europe that are mainly at the negotiation table with this, with this regime is do not bid on the losing horse. It is the Iranian people that you should bid on. And, and, and the real um, indicator of regime illegitimate and weakness was put on display with Iran's recent election. Yeah. Since the election, one of the things, John, that is really critical to think about is that since the election, there's been ongoing protests and, and strikes inside Iran. Right now, as we sit here today, yep. there are strikes by 96 industry 
energy industry companies and suppliers inside Iran across 10 provinces. Those labor strikes essentially covers 50% of Iran oil workers and labor, <laughs> which cripples the regime. But the interesting thing is similar waves of strike took place months before the fall of the Shah. Right. Now, Khamenei knows the playbook. Yep. He knows if they oppress the strike, it's going to be the similar igniting of the waves of protest and uprising across Iran. So they're trying to temper their reaction to the public. But there's only a certain limit where they can temper that, which means at some point they're going to get out to the street, arrest people, and start shooting people like the way they did in November of 2019. I think the, the real point here is that the explosive situation inside Iranian society, which is literally like a powder, powder keg, should be the point of calculation for the U.S. and Europe when it comes to the Iranian regime. And the only way, the only way that you can bring the world community together at the face of a mass murderer, who's already, by the way, sanctioned by the United States for yeah. human rights. Yeah, listen. Sanctioned by Europeans for his um, you know, human rights mass murder role in the killing of dissidents, is to really place human rights and democracy at the central element of Iran policy. Limiting Iran policy to just the nuclear threat is going to undermine our national security. It's going to undermine our moral values and our um, democratic uh, values that we uphold and we hold dear and near to our heart in this country or yeah. in, demo in any democratic country. 100%. So my, yeah, and my, so my advice is that where the bipartisan voice of Congress is talking about, even on the issue of nuclear, to be honest, there is a bipartisan voice of Congress where, you know, you really need to be much stronger at the table. Appeasement is dead. You know, appeasement policy that came into the U.S. Um, political narrative was actually built on this hope for the quote-unquote reformers and moderates yeah. inside Iran. They but never, they never are, materialized. They never materialized. <laughs> no. And this, you know, fake hardliner versus moderate dichotomy is now put to death with this past election inside Iran. Yeah. Because... It really shows that it doesn't matter because the moderate had Rouhani had his guy running on the ballot with Raisi. Right. And um, he didn't even get 3% of the vote. Nope. Which tells you the real choice for the Iranian people is regime change. So the real question then for a policymaker is when the Iranian people are turning their back on this regime, why should we not? turn our back on this regime? Yeah. Why should we not side with the Iranian people? That's the real question. And that's why placing human rights and democracy at the central element of policy is the right approach to take. Yeah, it's such an interesting moment because uh, we could extend the Mullah's regime by, uh, through appeasement, or we may be able to hasten its departure. And you know, every person I've ever brought on the show, Democrat, career, Republican, when we talk about Iran, they always say this, it's not a question of when the Mullah regime is going to fall. It's just a question of when. If that is the assessment, right, uh, there's an interesting dynamic that I think as you look at history, and I just want to do 30 seconds of history, and then we got about a minute left here before we go to commercial break. Um, uh, at the beginning, the Iranian 
diaspora was very divided. You had the MEK carrying out, you know, mm-hmm. internal efforts to to organize in the country and the regime cracking down on them. You had different views in the Iranian-American community. But over the last five or six years, in fact, for a while, the MEK was regarded as a terrorist organization in the United States until the Obama administration had to admit there was no factual basis for it. It was just a, a bad designation. Part of the appeasement policy. <laughs> exactly. It started by Bill Clinton. And, and yeah. uh, we, we, I put some of those memos out there that I've been able to get from the archives. The uh, Right now, for the first time, you have everybody from the MEK to the National Council of Resistance of Iran to the Organization of Iranian-American Communities. Basically, the entire expat diaspora community are, are, are on, in line with uh, the idea that the only solution is going to be regime change. We've tried every other option. Regime change is the only thing. This is the question to ask. If the United States were to take a hard line now, is there any guesstimate estimate at how long the mullahs could hold on to power given their the internal unrest? And is there a chance for the Obama of the Biden administration to make a call and see a regime change much quicker than has been projected? Absolutely. I think the international community has a significant role to play in standing with the Iranian people as they call for regime change by the Iranian people. And it's evidenced by the ongoing protests inside Iran. If you look at the protest slogans, it went from down with dictator to down with Khamenei, now down with Raisi and Rouhani. And uh, our enemy is here. Don't lie and say it's U.S., meaning that it doesn't matter how much you sanction this regime. We're not going to hold the international community uh, accountable. We're going to hold this regime accountable because they're the enemy. So, uh, so I am hopeful that in coming months, we're going to see some major transformational shifts. And, and, and this regime is too weak to hold on to its grip of power. And I think to, to add more into this is obviously Raisi's record and the fact that he has to be brought to justice um, for his crimes against humanity. That's going to be make it difficult for this regime to survive. Yeah. Well, this weekend is going to be a big weekend, folks. You're going to be able to watch the Free Iran Summit on Just the News. I've watched it all weekend long. We'll have some great stories. Susan Katz-Keating, our great security correspondent, is going to be covering it. And Ramesh, you know, I, 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 I seldom get the chance to say this, but your family has paid a dear price for a long time to fight for freedom. And your expertise, your your dedication to this really is something that all of us in America, some days we take it for granted, but uh, your voices are so important to giving the Iranian people the moment they have long yearned for and deserve, and that is a moment of freedom from an oppressive regime. So on behalf of all of our readers and, and listeners, uh, thank you for what you do. It's my pleasure, and thank you for having me today. It's an honor. We're going to be watching that conference. We'll probably need you back next week to make sense of all that happened there. Can't wait to to follow up with that. And uh, until then, Ramesh, have a great weekend, and thank you for all you're doing. Thank you, John, and you too. Take care. Thank you. All right, folks, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. Tune in to Just the News this week, and you can watch the Free Iran rally right on our website. All right, we'll be right back after these commercial messages. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. 
All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. And joining us now is someone I've had the pleasure to have on this show before. We love the conversation because every one of us is worried about the state of our economy right now. The inflationary pressures, the printing of money, the government spending, all the warning signs of a bubble. And every time we bring Philip Patrick on this show, we get a great straight talk. We really get thinking about where the economy stands. And so joining us again is my good friend, Philip Patrick. He's a precious metal specialist from Birch Gold Group. They're one of our advertisers and sponsors, but in his own right, Philip is a remarkable economic expert, particularly when it comes to uh, precious metals. And we always love talking to him. Philip, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me back. Thank you so much. Well, we couldn't have better timing because over the last few days, the markets have been pretty hinky. There's been some dropping values and a lot of talk about inflation. And you were warning about this three, four months ago. Very important to point out that you're ahead of this this curve that we're all catching up to in the American economy. Um, when we look at the inflation numbers, which now are pretty alarming, you know, 5% in May, um, we're going back, you have to go back a couple decades to find that sort of uh, sudden growth in inflation. Uh, where are you in terms of uh, the Federal Reserve calling it transitory and some other people saying this may be a sign of something more serious? What do you think is going on? Help us referee the different portraits we're getting about these inflationary numbers. Yeah, of course. You, you rightly point out the, the Bureau of Labor statistics came out. It was a few weeks ago with the, with the most current inflation numbers. And as, as you rightly point out, well over 5% and rising Um the Fed has tried to, I think, quell inflationary concerns by suggesting a lot of it was transitory right. in the short term. Look, there's some limited examples where I would say this would be true, right? Look at the lumber market up almost 400% over the last 12 months. A deep dive into this, and you realize it appears to be linked to supply chain issues, but many examples outside of that where it's clearly not transitory. Services up, food prices up, energy prices all up quite significantly. When we see inflation in these areas, it's typically here to stay, right? The only thing, well, deflationary periods are the only periods in which we can undo inflation, if you will, and they tend to be very, very rare. The last one was back in 2008, and it right. lasted less than one financial quarter. So. I would say in large part, uh, higher prices, it appears, are here to stay. Yeah, no, it, that's clearly what I'm beginning to hear from a lot of different uh, experts around the country. Now, the normal tool that the Fed and the government have to uh, address inflation is to raise interest rates. If they were to do that now, what, what do you think the fallout would be? What would be the impact on the economy? I mean, look, the raising of interest rates can have a significant impact on, on the stock market, right? I, I think many people understand that stock prices in large part have been driven over the last 12 years by fiscal policy. And I think low interest rates have really been central to that policy. Suggestions are, therefore, if the government were to raise interest rates significantly, this could be the catalyst for a long overdue stock market correction. Right. Um, and obviously, a correction in the stock market that has significant knock-on effects for the economy. It could spark unemployment and ultimately major recession here in the United States. So the big issue for the stock market is, is the short answer, I think. Yeah. And we're all in the stock market. We got our 401ks, we got our IRAs, we've got our everyday investments there. Uh, and so this isn't just hurting the Morgan Stanley's a, a, a correction there 
takes away uh, uh, wealth from our retirements, all the hard work we've been putting into this. Um, if they were to leave rates where they are uh, and uh, and just let this ride for a while, what what is the potential uh, outcome with that sort of a strategy? Yes, it's a, it's a good question. And, and I think the Fed is essentially stuck between a rock and a hard place here. As you rightly point out, the most effective tool that they have to combat inflation is to raise interest rates. Look at Carter in the 70s, right? Inflation was out of control. And the only way the government could really combat it was to raise rates significantly. And they ultimately got as high as 20%. I remember. As we know, it was crazy, right? Doing that today, though, comes with major consequences. We've discussed the stock market. It creates big issues there. But also it creates issues for the government, given the amount of debt we currently have. $30 trillion of national debt. We, you know, if interest rates were to get high again, the debt payments start to become untenable, right? So we really are stuck uh, with a very, very tough decision, right? If we don't raise rates and let the inflation run wild, or we raise rates and suffer the consequences in the stock market and the broader economy, it, it's certainly not a decision I would like to be making. Yeah, it's not not an easy time to be at the Fed. There's no no doubt about that. Um, whether the inflation continues and surges the way it's been, or uh, we start to bump up the rates, which obviously affects government and the markets. Um, one thing that you've educated our listeners on over the last uh, few months, and thanks to our great partnership with Birch Gold, is the fact that you now have the ability to diversify your savings, your 401k, your qualified IRAs, uh, with precious metals. So how would a gold and silver perform in this very uncertain moment that we might be heading into right now? It's almost like they're designed for it, right? Look, they're safe haven assets, so they tend to perform in tough times. And as we've highlighted here, look at the nature of our issues. We have stock market correction. We have inflation. These are both potential big issues here in the United States. And as negative as those issues are, they actually function as positive drivers for gold and silver, right? Oftentimes when stocks crash, people flood towards safe haven assets and they can go up, right? If we look at the last crash back in 08, gold and silver doubled in value in 18 months of that. Then we have the inflationary side of this, right? Well, everyone knows what inflation is. It's when things get more expensive over time. The technical definition is the rising cost of commodities and services, right? And then we have to understand that is what gold and silver are. They are commodities. Yeah, great point. So by definition, exactly, they increase. So yep. very conducive for this sort of climate. Now, a lot of people may not know how to go about the process of uh, uh, working gold and silver, precious metals into their retirement portfolios. Could you remind everybody how that happens and how Birch Gold can help them, how, how what you guys have created uh, in, with the book? It really makes this pretty simple. I did it. I love it. I, I did a lot of research on this. It's really fascinating. Just remind us how you can begin the process of, of considering physical gold and silver within a, an IRA or 401k. Of course. First step for your listeners, I think, is to contact us. We have a, a dedicated URL for your listeners, which is www.birchgold.com forward slash just news. They can request a free information guide, uh, which really guides you through the process. And we have a lot of experts like myself that are there to help and sort of hold your listeners' hands and 
get everything set up and, and guide them through the process. But we make it very simple here. But. Yeah, we love we love the partnership. And we also love, I'll tell you, Philip, every time you come on, we get a great response because I think people are looking out and they're trying to make sense. And there's these conflicting messages with with the Fed, with, you know, people on Wall Street saying, eh, yeah, you're not going to be able to do this. Transitory doesn't feel right. And so uh, it's so good to have someone that's right on the front lines and able to to, you know, really help us walk through and consider things. As, as you look out over the next couple of months, what are the most important signs for Americans to watch for? What are the warning signs, the trigger signs for someone to fall back into a, a safer position like uh, a gold and silver? Look, I think we're seeing those warning signs, right? When the government coming out, they're suggesting, look, inflation's here, it's yep. here to stay. Look at the numbers in the stock market. I think I may have mentioned in the past, we have price-to-earning ratio yeah. at a level that Red flag. never been at in history without a, a major correction to follow. So I think the warning signs are already here. The key for me is just to understand where the issues are and as much as possible to be preemptive. And that's why I think shows like this are so important, right? You keep people informed with what's going on. The next step is, like I said, just to be preemptive and try and put together some measure of a hedge so that if things do turn, there's a portion of your portfolio that's working in that climate to protect. Yeah, it's insulated. And- yeah, no, such a great advice. And, you know, I want to remind everyone, the first time we had Philip on this show, I think it was back in March, there was no one talking about inflation except for him. And he had it right uh, the last couple of months. Every prediction that he made in, in terms of where the economy was headed, the, the rock and hard place scenario that the Fed, um, you got it here first because we have this great partnership and this great friendship with Philip. Philip, I want to thank you all again for all you're doing. We're, we're going to keep getting you back on the show because it's really important for us to keep folks ahead of these economic curves that are, I think, coming our way. And um, it's just an honor to have you on the show every time you're here. Uh, it's an honor to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Well, we're going to have you back soon because I don't think this roller coaster is stopping anytime soon. So thanks again. All right, folks, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up for the day. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. All right, folks. What a day. What a conversation. A set of conversations we had. So grateful for uh, the expertise we just shared on on the economy and also uh, on Iran. Keep in mind this weekend, you can watch the free Iran rally all across the world on justthenews.com. We'll have coverage. Thanks to Susan Katz, Keating and others. An important week of both economic and global turmoil to keep an eye on. And we're so lucky to have the experts. We're also so lucky to have you as our listeners supporting us and making all of this possible. All right. You have a great weekend. I can't wait for next week. We've got some big guests already on the horizon. Tom Fitton from Judicial Watch up on Monday. Brand new lawsuit. A lot of things to be digging for in the investigative world. Accountability for Biden, the deep state, the bureaucracy. Uh, Opportunities for transparency through FOIA. Nobody does it better than Tom Fitton. He's here on Monday. And then Tuesday, I'm going to bring somebody I've worked with for 
two decades uh, as a reporter. He was Senator Charles Grassley's top investigative for about two decades. Jason Foster is going to join us. If you don't know him, he's been one of the most influential investigators, maybe whose name you never heard, but he broke scandals like Fast and Furious, the gun running scandal during the Obama years. Uh, he helped unravel a lot of the Russia collusion case, including showing that Hillary Clinton had paid for Fusion GPS and Christopher Steele. He has started a brand new whistleblower group for patriotic whistleblowers. If you're in government and, and you're afraid to blow the whistle because the most of the groups today have alliances with the left, with the Democrats, with Joe Biden, well, Jason Foster started a group for those who have conservative values or freedom values or patriotic values. And we're going to talk about that, the response to it, the early successes of the group. Uh, so a great start to next week already. So buckle up, have a great week and enjoy your family. Stay cool. And we'll be back Monday with a new editions of John Solomon Reports from Just the News. And whenever you need a news fix, including on Iran this weekend, just check us out at justthenews.com. We always have uh, the latest breaking headlines and investigative scoops for you whenever you check in with us. God bless you for listening. God bless you for your support. Uh, and uh, may you have a blessed weekend. And may God bless this extraordinary country, as he always has, the United States of America. You've been listening to John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Thank you. God bless you. And good weekend.